Good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's CEO and President. And I'm really thrilled to see all of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Uh, I want to remind those of you who have not yet seen the Armory Show at 100 um, that its run will finish on February 23rd. And um, if you have not seen it, it's a spectacular exhibition, very unusual for us with uh, Cezanne and Matisse and Picasso um, and so on and so forth represented. It's a fabulous show. So do return during regular museum hours uh, to see that show. Uh, along with our other great exhibitions, including one on this very floor on the Gilded Age, Beauty's Legacy. Uh, I also want to make sure you're all aware of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz classic film series, uh, which takes place on most Friday evenings for the complete schedule, Ask on Your Way Out this evening. And finally, I want to make sure that everyone in this audience is a member of the New York Historical Society. Um, if you're not, please join. Very easy to do it, and your support makes programs like this one possible, um, and uh, all of the great work that we do at this splendid institution. Tonight's program, Duty, Memoirs of a Secretary at War, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Program. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their incredible support, which has enabled us to bring so many great historians and writers to this auditorium. Very fortunate to have Mr. Schwartz in our audience this evening. Thank you so very much, Bernard. I also want to thank and recognize our great board chair, Pam Schaffler, who's seated next to Mr. Schwartz for her fabulous work on behalf of this institution. And trustees in attendance this evening, Carl Mengus, Russell Penoyer, and Marty Gross. Thank you so very much to all of you for everything that you do. The discussion this evening will last until 7.15, and it will be followed by a book signing in our Smith Gallery with Robert M. Gates, whose book will be available for purchase in our museum store. We are really thrilled to, rec to welcome Robert M. Gates to the New York Historical Society. Dr. Gates served as the 22nd Secretary of Defense between 2006 and 2011, and is the only Secretary of Defense in US history to be asked to remain in office by a newly elected president. Prior to this post, Secretary Gates spent nearly 27 years as an intelligence professional at the Central Intelligence Agency, eventually rising to the position of director in 1991. During this period, he spent nearly nine years at the National Security Council, serving four presidents from both political parties. Among the numerous honors he has received, Secre Secretary Gates has been awarded the National Security Medal, the President's Citizens Medal, and has three times received the Distinguished Intelligence Medal, the CIA's highest award. He now serves as Chancellor of the College of William and Mary. Our moderator this evening is David Gregory, the moderator of NBC's Meet the Press. Mr. Gregory has ushered in a new digital era for Meet the Press, expanding its reach via, via the program's blog and through social networking sites. Since joining NBC News in 1995, Mr. Gregory has served as a correspondent based in Chicago and Los Angeles. 
and he went on to serve as NBC's chief White House correspondent for eight years during the presidency of George W. Bush. Mr. Gregory has covered three presidential campaigns and has been named by Washingtonian Magazine as one of Washington's 50 best and most influential journalists. As always, before we begin our program, I'd like to ask you to please make sure that anything that makes a noise, like a cell phone, is switched off, and also that only our own uh, New York Historical Society photographer may take photographs this evening. And now, please join me in welcoming our guests. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Mr. Secretary, how are you? Good, I'm good. Are you feeling okay? Well, I wish I could say it was something exciting like backcountry skiing or <laughs> rugby or something, but it's just clumsy. <laughs> Tripping on a rug on, in my home. I saw the secretary, I said, gosh, are you okay? And he said, yeah. I said, well, you're not gonna wear that, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I like to tell people, until I became secretary of defense, I'd never broken a bone or had a surgery. And, and in 2008, in January, I broke, I slipped on the ice and broke this shoulder in three places. And a year, a year later, uh, had to have surgery on this arm. So my security guys discovered very quickly that uh, the biggest danger to me was not Al Qaeda, <laughs> but myself. Well, this is fun to be able to do this. Um, you'll be on Meet the Press on Sunday, I have to mention. But it's great to be in front of an audience and to have some time to talk about the world with you because this is a, it's an excellent book. It's a very interesting book. And one of the things that I liked about it is, you know, for those of us who are journalists and therefore, you know, citizens in the country, we really don't know what's going on real time. And that's true of journalists who report on these events. You really don't know. You know just a small sliver of what's really going on. So a book like this tells us. So there were a couple of quotes from the book that I wanted to ask you about. Here's one. I did not enjoy being Secretary of Defense. Here's another. People have no idea how much I detest this job. <laughs> and another, as you were beginning to work for Obama, quote, serving in this position for nearly two years, and especially the opportunity to leave our brave and dedicated soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and defense civilians has been the most gratifying experience of my life. So which was it? Well, this is where the journalists are all sort of saying that this is one of many contradictions in the book. But I don't think it's a contradiction at all. Uh, I, what I've written about in the book is that when you're the Secretary of Defense and in two wars, and let me apologize to the folks back over here, but I can't turn my head very easily. Um, when you're the Secretary of Defense and charged with trying to salvage two wars, and every Friday you're signing deployment orders that send uh, thousands of young men and women in harm's way, when every night you write condolence letters to the families of the fallen. When you visit the hospitals, <clears throat> you visit the front lines, you go to funerals at Arlington. I would say that 
any Secretary of Defense who enjoys the job ought to step down. There is nothing enjoyable about that. And having to do those things uh, made it very difficult. I also detested the job, as I say in the book, because it will be no news to this audience that getting anything done in Washington, as I say in the book, is just damnably hard in today's environment. Now, the good news is I actually was able to get a lot of things done. But it was incredibly difficult and required an enormous amount of discipline in terms of trying to work with the Congress, work with uh, the different presidents, meet the bureaucratic challenges of my own building that so often were obstacles to getting things done for the troops. So there was really nothing fun or enjoyable about the book. but. At the same time, being able to interact with all of those amazing people in uniform was, as I write in the book, both the greatest honor and most gratifying thing that I've ever done. There are several parts of the book, several parts of your experience, several important episodes where you write about the fact that you considered quitting, that you, you considered resigning. What kept you from doing that? Well, mainly because those, those when, I, when I had those feelings, it was because I was angry about the way a particular problem had been uh, discussed, uh, the way we, we were trying to deal with it, um, the impediments to getting the job done. But, but at the end of the day, and, and I would say this is particularly true of the Obama administration, the president made decisions that I thought were the right decisions. Whether it was the Afghan surge, I, I described his decision on the bin Laden raid as one of the most courageous acts I'd ever seen a president uh, carry out. Uh, and, and so despite the complexity of the problems and, and, of the, and the heatedness of the debates, I was always comfortable with the decisions that he made at the end. And it really only was in the last three or four months I was there. And I, was, I worked for him long, six months longer than I worked for President Bush. That was when I, I began to have some real differences in terms of how we dealt with Egypt uh, when um, the Arab Spring took place. I clearly disagreed with the decision to intervene in Libya. Um, but I knew these were tough decisions. And you know, in public life, and Obama was the eighth president I'd served, you also have to make the, the, the decision along the way, uh, you know, you're not gonna win every battle in Washington. Nobody does that. So the question is, which ones are worth resigning over? And I will tell you, had I had I remained in office, and frankly, the president asked me to stay until the end of his first term. It basically made it clear I could stay as long as I wanted. But what very likely, the one thing that may well have caused me actually to resign would have been when the Congress uh, uh, actually implemented sequestration. Because it was such Let's a Let's make sure everybody understands what that which, is, automatic cuts. These automatic across-the-board cuts of $600 billion on top 
of $800 billion in cuts that had already been, that half of which I had carried out on my own initiative, another 400 the President had ordered, and then the Congress comes in and tops that up with another $600 billion. But it was mindless because the least important thing and the most important thing had to be cut by the same amount. And that was so mindless and so damaging in my view. I, I, I think as I look at it, that would have occasioned my resignation. And ironically, it would have been over an act of Congress rather than something the President did. Would you vote for Hillary Clinton for President? <laughs> well, I think I make it pretty clear in the book that I'm an admirer of Hillary's. And, and I also say, you know, I didn't have that great a, of an opinion of her when I, when I first met her. Uh, the day that President Obama announced that she would be Secretary of State and I would be Secretary of Defense. So I'm, I'm obviously uh, have very high regard for her, but, but I think that uh, my guess is the Democratic Party would not like even a nominal Republican handicapping their presidential race in 2016. Are you a Republican still? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, that was, that was the, the, I have a pretty good poker face but right after Obama appointed me, uh, that was the first question I was asked in a Pentagon press conference. So <laughs> and, did you vote for it? And I had, and I had to know whether I was a Republican. Oh. <laughs> and, and I'm sitting there in this moment of panic, and I'm thinking, geez, if I say no, I'm going to tick off two presidents. <laughs> One who appointed me in the first place thinking I was a Republican, and the second who wanted a Republican for this team of rivals. So I said, well, I've never registered as a Republican, but I consider myself a Republican. And truth is, I'd, I'd received all of my most senior appointments, both at the White House and at CIA, under Republicans. So would you vote for Hillary, or you won't say? Uh, I think I'll take a pass. <laughs> would she be a good president? I found her to be very tough-minded. Uh, but I only saw, and, and the reason I hedge is that I only saw Hillary in, in one aspect of the presidency, and that is national security. And there, I was impressed by her tough-mindedness, mm -hmm. uh, by her idealism mixed with pragmatism, as I write in the book. Uh, and I thought she was a very effective representative for the United States. But you wrote something that, frankly, is devastating politically. I cover politics, and I can tell you that, you know, if I were an operative, I would pass out the quote from the book in which you relate from a national security meeting that she says that the surge in Iraq worked and that she opposed it because she was facing you know, heat from Obama in Iowa. Well, that caught my attention, her statement. Uh, you were dismayed made, by that. made an impact on me for two reasons. Um, the first, you have to understand that during the first several months of the, of the uh, Obama administration, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mullen, and I would be sitting in the Situation Room while the President, the Vice President, the Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, and a host of others all sat around trashing the Bush administration and, and what a lousy job they'd done in national security and what a bunch of bums the, the team was. And, and Mullen and I would look at each other afterwards and say, what, are we invisible? <laughs> we were integral members of that team. And so it was sort of the same way when Hillary made that comment uh, in the Situation Room, ironically because she was using it as an example of why the President needed to approve the Afghan surge. Mm -hmm. The other reason it caught my attention was that it was an anomaly. In two and a half years that I worked with Hillary when she was Secretary of State, 
That is the only time that I ever heard her talk about domestic politics as a factor in national security. The entire time that she actually had the responsibilities as Secretary of State, I never once heard her discuss domestic politics or any aspect of it as an influence on her thinking. She was a candidate, she was a senator and in, and in campaign mode, and you know what? Everybody's surprised that politics uh, in, in taking these positions. I mean, the truth of the matter is, and, and it's the quote that I have in the book from the president associated with that conversation. Right. Is Seemed that, to intimate is that, that he replied, as I say yeah. vaguely, that politics was involved in the opposition. And, and what I've tried to clarify, if you read the book, I'm, Obama is not saying that politics influenced his opposition to the surge, because in fact, his opposition to the surge was completely consistent with his opposition to the war. To the war itself. Let me ask you a question. I mean, as a journalist, I love it. I love to be taken inside the room to find out what was said in, in high stakes meetings, national security meetings. I love quotes. But why is it appropriate to share the content of a very sensitive national security deliberation about war, as you've done in this book, particularly when this president's still in office? Well, first of all, one reviewer pointed out that if you, uh, out of 600 pages in the book, there are probably 10 that say something unfavorable about either President Bush or President Obama. And, and I have a lot of praise for both presidents in the book. And, and the re there are two aspects, two ways to answer your question. The first is why I wrote the book now. And I wrote the book now because this is not just a retrospective. There is a lot in this book, first of all, about how you get things done in a polarized, paralyzed Washington that I think are lessons that are applicable today. There are recommendations in terms of how we try and get past the paralysis, in terms of how one people deal with each other in Washington. But there's also a lot in there in terms of getting into wars and getting out of wars, the potential risks of military engagement in Syria, military attacks against Iran if the negotiations don't work, how you deal with Russia and China and, and with allies like Israel and Saudi Arabia. So I think they're, you know, having worked for eight presidents, I think I have a perspective and an experience that are relevant to the issues that are being debated today and would be irrelevant in three years. The other aspect of it is that, you know, you, you alluded to this in your, in your first remarks. I felt it was important to give the American people some insight into the passion and into the byplay that goes on in, uh, in the councils of government when we're dealing with issues of war and peace. And, and, and to see presidents wrestling with the issues in front of them, whether their strategy is working or not, uh, uh, pushing back on generals in terms of their requests or their strategy. Both President Bush and President Obama did that. So it seemed to me to personalize and humanize these, these debates. I would also add, just as a footnote, you know, there is a whole genre of books out there that reveal presidential conversations, presidential discussions, intimate uh, goings-on in the White House and so on. They're just all done under the cloak of on background. Mm -hmm. 
and a lot of back, a lot of bestsellers, a lot of books have been sold with with those kinds of things. I think that if you look at where I talk about uh, describe conversations in which the president was involved, whether one on one or in the Situation Room, I think virtually all of those portray those presidents in a positive light in terms of being tough-minded and asking hard questions. I asked you on Meet the Press once to compare working for President Bush and President Obama. Um, and you demurred a little bit and then answered a little bit. And you write about that. And then regretted it. And then regretted it later. <laughs> I didn't regret it. Um, because I wanted to ask you about where you, you know, an example of a disagreement with Obama. But before that, I think we'd all be interested. Just, gosh, what was it like? What were the differences between these two? Well, the, the, the thing that I think is different than expectations is, is how much they had in common. Mm. Which uh, would, I think, surprise a lot of people. Yeah. First of all, like most presidents, uh, they didn't socialize much in Washington. Mm -hmm. Uh, they would socialize with very close friends, often, more often than not, people who were not in government, uh, but old friends uh, from before. Uh, neither one of them liked the Congress, uh, including members of their own party. Uh, and, uh, and, and really, as I describe in the book, had the worst of both worlds on the Hill. Uh, they were neither much liked nor much feared compared to other presidents that I had worked for, beginning with Lyndon Johnson. Uh, Bush was a more instinctive decision maker. Uh, he, would, he welcomed alternative points of view and disagreement, but, but he, he didn't go around the room calling on people. You either offered your, volunteered your opinion, or you were silent. President Obama, on the other hand, always went around the room on key issues and particularly at key moments in a decision process and would ask everybody in the room what their opinion was, what their view was of what he should do, including junior staffers sitting on the back benches. And quite frankly, um, that, and I admit it, got under my skin from time to time. So on Egypt, for example, and this was one of several places where the vice president and I actually agreed, um, the, the, the junior staffers, if you will, urged him to tell Mubarak he had to leave immediately and then to go public with what he had told Mubarak. All of the senior members of the president's team, the vice president, the secretary of state, the secretary of defense, the national security advisor, and the chairman of joint chiefs of staff, all recommended against doing that. Mm -hmm. And I said, you should tell Mubarak he needs to go sooner rather than later. And he rejected that. Uh, and some of the younger staffers were saying, Mr. President, you've got to be on the right side of history. And I said, that's great if we could just figure out the right side of history. Uh, similarly, on Libya, the vice president and I agreed on that as well, that we should not intervene. The uh, vice president was concerned about being dragged into something and the domestic politics of it. I was concerned. Uh, I just said in the Situation Room, can we just finish the two wars we're already in before we go looking for another one? Um, so, but Obama wanted everybody's opinion and basically weighed everybody's opinion kind of equally in that respect. 
Um, you also are seeing them at different times, right? I mean, you, you, I mean, Bush, by the time you get in there, you acknowledge this. I mean, the, the, his key political figures are out of the picture by that point. I mean, yeah, this absolutely. is a president who is thoroughly defeated at this point, and the war is going horribly. He's no longer risk-averse. He admits that. And he understands, as you also write, that he has made, made his bed, made his legacy, and he had to lie in it at that point, much different than the first year of yeah, a new president. Absolutely. And I, and I say in the book, by the time I got there, all the big decisions, except for the surge in Iraq, had mm -hmm. been made. All of the, I described them, the sharp-elbowed politicos were gone. He would never run for re-election, neither would his vice president. Obama comes into office, knows from day one he's going to want to run for re-election. His vice president and his secretary of state both have potential ambitions and so on. So one of the things that was different was I never heard domestic politics discussed in the Bush administration in the context of national security issues. It was an integral part of every discussion. Uh, in the Obama administration. But where I give the president credit, President Obama credit, is that although one, in one instance I say he was aware of the politics, but unlike Biden and Rahm Emanuel, wasn't driven by the politics. So tell me. So he would make decisions right. contrary. That domestic politics would be a big element in the discussion, but at the end, for example, on the Afghan surge, he would overrule all of his political advisors and the vice president and approve uh, the course of action that, that Hillary and I had recommended. Can you tell me a story where you guys got mad at each other? Take us inside that. President Obama, I'm talking about. Um, well, there was, I think, the place where, where we had the um, most difficult difference of opinion uh, was probably over the process of implementing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And ending the ban on, on and, gays, ban and, on, uh, gays, gays in the military. The military. Yep. We both had the same objective. Uh, and, and we had reached agreement that, that we would ha conduct this review in the Department of Defense, not with a view to whether or not we should do Don't Ask, Don't, uh, get rid of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, but rather what are the views of the troops, what are the issues that we can identify so that we can, through training and preparation, mitigate or eliminate uh, the, any negative consequences of its implementation because the Joint Chiefs under President Clinton had opposed it as having a huge impact, negative impact on unit morale and recruitment and, uh, and um, unit cohesion and so on. And, but the Congress got out in front of us and, and the Congress wanted to vote to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell before we had done the review. And I felt like we had made a commitment to the troops to listen to them before we moved forward and to move before that review was completed, that survey, would be to tell the troops, we don't care what you think. We're just going to move straight ahead. So. The White House came under enormous pressure and decided to move ahead and agree with the legislation, and there was a compromise that would delay its implementation until after the review. But as part of this, and part of appealing a court decision, the President wanted me to suspend uh, expulsions from the military under the Don't Ask, Don't Tell law. And, and my view was, 
that I couldn't, I mean, that is the most directive part of the law, that once someone has engaged in homosexual conduct, they had to be expelled from the military. So what he was asking me to do was to suspend enforcement of the most directive part of the law. And I said to him, Mr. President, there is law and no law. I, don't, I can't differentiate in those parts of the law that I have to enforce and those that I decide not to enforce. And he was very impatient with me. He said, you know, the, the, those in fighting this law in the courts the, had the stronger case that this was the right thing to do. Uh, and, and he got frustrated that as president, he couldn't just make it happen. And he said, and it was clear he wouldn't make me do something that I thought was wrong, but he was clearly frustrated by it. But then this is the most amazing thing about Obama. So we have just had this as tense an exchange as I have ever had with a president. The discussion is over, and he turns to me and he smiles. And he says, are you sure I can't get you to stay another year? <laughs> and he treated me extremely well the entire time uh, that, I was president, uh, that I was Secretary of Defense. And we would have these disagreements. And I give him credit that he was willing to abide having a cabinet officer who would push back on him. Mm -hmm. And at one point before the bin Laden raid, I told the president, in in front of a bunch of people in the situation, because I, I, was, I had real reservations about it for fear that whether or not the raid was successful, that it would impact uh, the war in Afghanistan, that the Pakistani reaction, they would cut off our lines of communication and we would really be in trouble in Afghanistan. <clears throat> and, and he, I, I said at one point in one meeting, I said, Mr. President, I think one of the things you have valued about me being your Secretary of Defense is my experience. But maybe now my experience is making me too cautious. Mm -hmm. And his response was, no, no, I need to hear the questions that you ask and the doubts that you express. I need to think about all of that. And, and so, you know, I think, I hope what comes through in the book is that despite the fact we had our disagreements, I really have a lot of admiration for the guy. And I say, one of the conclusions you asked me about Bush and Obama, one of the things that I say in the book toward the end is, both of those presidents did things that I considered to be politically very risky. Now, Bush with the Iraq surge, Obama with the bin Laden raid, with the Afghan surge, and, and several other things. And I saw both put the national interest above their political interest, thereby earning my highest praise and respect. You are brutal on Joe Biden in this book. I think, <laughs> and I've read every word, and I, I stand by brutal. And by the way, it's not personal. I mean, you talk about he's impossible not to like him. It, so let's cut to the chase of it. My reading is you're, you really blame him for poisoning my words, although I think you said poisoning the well in the book a couple times, but sort of poisoning the president's view of the military, and particularly by trafficking in the idea that, the, that you can't trust these guys, the military leaders, and that they will jam you, that they will jam you on Afghanistan, on 
how many troops you need, and then they will, they will resist you when it comes to troop withdrawal. If you agree that that was the nub of the issue, can you unpack that a little bit for me? Well, my, my concern was, as Secretary of Defense, uh, the very real suspicion in the White House from the President on down of the motives of the senior military. Um, they were respectful. Uh, the President gave them all the time they wanted uh, on issues. But, but I think particularly with respect to Afghanistan, uh, that, um, that he was suspicious of their motives. And as I acknowledge in the book, the military gave him some reason to be suspicious. And just to give one example, in September of 2009, we've begun the debate on whether or not to agree to McChrystal's request for 40,000 additional troops. So midway through, December, uh, through September, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Mullen, is up for reconfirmation re for his second term as chairman. In an open hearing, he tells the Congress that he thinks it's imperative to add additional troops. It made the White House furious because we're in the middle of this debate and the Admiral is basically taking a position publicly, urging the President to approve, uh, approve the, the troop increase and thereby putting pressure on him. A week later, McChrystal's assessment that essentially concludes that without a significant increase in, increase in troops, the mission in Afghanistan will fail, that assessment leaks to the Washington Post. Deep suspicion, probably justified in the White House, that it was leaked by the military, by somebody in the military. And then, just a few days after that, General McChrystal gives a speech in London, and the speech is okay, but in the Q&A afterward, he is asked a question, and the answer, and in the answer, he he just dismisses the option the vice president has been pushing inside the administration uh, for Afghanistan. So the White House sees these three things, and then and then there's a fourth. David Petraeus gives an interview to in which he argues for more troops for Afghanistan. And the columnist he gives the interview to is Bruce Gerson, who was a speechwriter for President Bush. So these four things collectively, I think, create this, help stoke the, the notion, uh, the suspicion in the White House. But I think that on top of that, to get to the point of your question, that the vice president is in there needling the president all the time and saying exactly the things that you said. And this is what I was hearing from people inside the White House. These guys, you can't trust these guys. They will jam you. They're trying to box you in. Uh, you can't let them have their way on this. And so I think that not only the Vice President, but the, the Deputy National Security Advisor and subsequently National Security Advisor, Tom Donilon, uh, were doing this. And, and I think it created a very unhealthy environment. And, and it made, it was very difficult for me because I would have very frank conversations with the president about this and try and assure him that, that this was not an orchestrated campaign, that these were isolated, unrelated incidents, that in McChrystal's case, this guy had been in special operations his entire career. He had no experience in the public or dealing with Congress or the press or anybody else. I think he was just naive. As I, as I put it in the book, he was fighting on a battlefield that he didn't understand. Mm -hmm. 
And, and I thought that, uh, and Mullen admitted he made a mistake in his hearing. So I, but having to, having to deal with this suspicion, which, which was primarily focused on Afghanistan, but did spill over into some other issues like the Haitian relief effort and so on, uh, was a real challenge. One of the notable quotes that, that people may have, have uh, paid attention to is that you write about, and this is in uh, this is when the debate turns to a troop withdrawal deadline. That you felt the president was only concerned about getting out. That he didn't trust Petraeus at that point, who's the commander in Afghanistan. He didn't trust or believe in his own strategy anymore. It was all about getting out. And I read that, and, and you know, you could look at it in isolation and think that that was a real dig at Obama. On the other hand, I thought this was the longest war in the history of America. It is a war that, that was, by your own admission, was too ambition, ambitious in its goals of nation building in addition to eradicating the Taliban. Why wouldn't it be totally appropriate for the president at that point to be thinking about how to get out? Well, I think by that time, the, I mean, we had already decided that we would have withdrawn, we would withdraw our uh, forces from Afghanistan by December of 2014. And I, I guess it was just, it was in the, that quote is in the context of that, of the particular meeting we were, we were sitting in. And, and, and it, it was the president accusing, in effect, Petraeus and perhaps others of us of gaming him, mm -hmm. of trying to delay the drawdowns. And I didn't think that that was the case at all. And, and, and the truth is, I think, I mean, it was pretty obvious that, that the relationship between um, most of the people in the Obama administration, including the president and Karzai, shall we say, was not warm and fuzzy. Uh, and, and Karzai is a challenge. Uh, but I think, uh, I think that the, as I've, as I've thought about what I wrote, I think, I think that Obama's reservations and concerns were focused, first of all, on the non-military objectives of his strategy that he saw clearly were not working. The effort to get the Pakistanis to stop hedging and helping the Taliban, uh, to try and get the Karzai government to be less corrupt and more competent, uh, to get more American and uh, allied civilians in to help with development and so on. None of those things were working the way we had assumed and hoped for when the president approved the strategy in December or November of 2009. The military campaign, particularly in the first few months of 2010, was going slower than the military had promised. Folks might remember the original campaign or Marja in Helmand province, where we talked about the Afghans putting in government in a box. Mm -hmm. You know, it was all ready to go and just insert, and all of that took a lot longer. And because of the difficulties in Marja, McChrystal was proceeding more slowly than originally planned in Kandahar. So all of these things, I think, fed the president's reservations. I didn't have any problem with the president expressing his concerns about how the strategy was going and whether we were. Uh, whether we were succeeding or not. But it was clear that he was getting, and justifiably so, getting fed up with the war. And 
And uh, I, I think this was, I mean, President Bush had deep reservations about his own Iraq strategy in 2006 and ended up changing that strategy at the end of 2007, uh, at the end of 2006. We look at Afghanistan, we look but, at... But yeah. just, David, I, the one thing that I am not pushing against in the, in the book, that, you know, presidents need to question generals. They need right. to push them hard. I pushed them hard. I fired a bunch. Uh, so that's not the issue at all. The things that troubled me were the suspicion of the military, the senior military, and, and this preoccupation with getting out, and in this context. I didn't mind the speeches about exit strategies. What I, what I missed and what underpinned that quote that you read was the president's unwillingness to go out repeatedly and say why succeeding in Afghanistan was important, why the mission that he was asking, he was sending men and women in uniform to fulfill was just and noble and worth their sacrifice. That to me is a responsibility of the commander in chief and I did not see that in President Obama. Have we won or lost in Afghanistan? I think that as we narrow, one of the benefits of this tremendous fight we had inside the administration was that we significantly over time uh, Re, uh, scaled down our ambitions. My view and the position that I took with the president was forget trying to build a, centra, a competent central government. Forget about trying to make big inroads in corruption. Let's focus on two or three ministries in the central government that matter. Mm -hmm. But let's, let's remember why we're there in the first place. So let's use our military and the surge to hammer the Taliban reduce their military capabilities at the same time we're building up the military capabilities of the Afghans so that the Afghan government can keep control of the country and keep the Taliban from making it the place, uh, a, a, a place where extremists can launch attacks against the United States again. I think the Afghan army is doing better than most press accounts here in the United States suggest. They're already responsible for security for most of the Afghans in the country. Uh, the reports I get from our military is that they're out there, they're fighting, they're dying, uh, and, and they are putting up a pretty effective fight against the Taliban. I, and this is, where, this is where, despite my concerns on the two issues that I mentioned, uh, where I continue to support the president, is that I think the decisions he's made and the actual actions he's taken have been right, and I've supported all of his decisions on Afghanistan, and I think including the negotiation of this strategic agreement with the Afghans that would leave a residual U.S. and allied force in Afghanistan. I think it's really critical that we have a residual force in Afghanistan of eight to 10, 12,000 troops, ours and the allies, both as a signal to the Taliban that we're gonna be there but also as a message of reassurance to the Afghans that we're not going to abandon them, and the Pakistanis and the neighbors that we're not turning our backs and leaving, as we did after the Soviets left Afghanistan in 1988. I think sending that message is important. I believe that the Afghans eventually will agree or will ratify this agreement, and I think the prospects of the, of the Afghan army being able to keep the Taliban at bay 
are actually pretty good at this point. Will history view Iraq as a mistake? Well, I've, I've, I say in the book, and you I, view it I, as a mistake. I, I've said for a long time that that the Iraq War will always be tainted by the fact that it was launched on wrong premises. That the Iraqis had weapons of mass destruction. It, that, that will that's inescapable. It will linger, I think, forever. Whether or not the effort as a whole, how it how it is viewed historically, I think will depend on whether two or three decades from now, the removal of Saddam Hussein and the creation of a, of a at least the foundation of a multi-sectarian, quasi-democratic state in Iraq is seen as the first crack in the wall of authoritarianism in the Middle East that over the next 20 or 30 years, we get past the problems that we're seeing now in Syria and Libya and, and other places, and you end up with a more democratic Middle East. I think only in that context could the war be seen as, a, as, as having been worth it, if you will. I, I think that I talk in the book about what I regard as the enormous mistakes that were made after the original successful invasion. Uh, I think that we did not, and I talk about the, our failures in how we look at war and, and getting into and out of wars and all of the assumptions that proved to be wrong. For example, that you know, we almost always go to war thinking it'll be short. This is the 100th anniversary of World War I. They thought World War I would be wrapped up by October of 1914. And, and I think that, that what we never anticipated was that by taking out Saddam Hussein, we removed probably the principal bulwark in the Middle East against Iran. And I think one, one unintended consequence of the invasion of Iraq has been to strengthen Iran's position in the region and, and creates uh, another set of problems for us to deal with. Let me end where we started, which is the painful part of being defense secretary, which is second to the commander in chief, uh, you know, unique in that regard in terms of being responsible for people's lives. And you wrote this, icy detachment was never an option for me, referring to uh, General Marshall during World War II because there was such loss of life. You continue, because of the nature of the two wars I oversaw, I could afford the luxury of sentiment, and at times it nearly overwhelmed me. Well, it, 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 it really was about the fact that um, it, goes, it goes to a decision that I made early on to handwrite letters of condolence. And then I, I didn't want any of these young people uh, to become statistics for me. And so with each package that would come to me, I would ask for uh, the hometown newspaper accounts of their lives and the, you know, the comments of their parents or their wives or their brothers and sisters or their coaches or their pastors. Uh, or priests and 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 uh, and so on, so that I could know them, and I wanted a picture 
of each of them. And, and I wanted to know that this kid came from a well-to-do family, didn't have to serve, but enlisted because he thought he owed it to his country. Or a kid who had been aimless in high school and found direction and purpose in his life in the military. And, and because relative to our other wars, the casualties were, relatively speaking, much smaller, much lower. I could do this with each of those young men and women who were killed. And, and that's when I talk about how it became overwhelming for me. And I would sit and I would do these condolence letters at night. And as I say in the book, and every night for four and a half years, I would weep. Mr. Secretary, thank you for your service. Thank you, David.